Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project. I'm Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, my co-host is joining me. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jay. How are you? Good, good. Um, so, Tom, it's the season of thinking about developing new skills, uh, new habits that are going to be beneficial and productive for the new year. And we have a guest on today's show that is going to talk to, about, talk to us about some of these issues and think about how, you know, as lawyers, we can optimize what we're doing, um, get in the right mindset and really, you know, dial in on not just what we can be doing, but what we should be doing to have a fulfilling career. Um, so Elise Bowie is joining us. She's a passionate, creative, problem-solving family law attorney who crafts solutions rather than obstacles. After being forced to evacuate her hometown of New Orleans and going through a divorce of her own, Elise landed in Seattle where she opened her own family law firm. Her practice involves all aspects of family law and is guided by a collaborative philosophy as well as Elise's deep understanding of complex parenting issues. She opened her firm during a period of personal adversity and it's in a period of global adversity in the form of a pandemic that her firm has experienced its greatest growth. Elise, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. Thanks so much, Jay. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know I introduced you a little bit, gave some background, but maybe can you fill in some gaps? Like, give us a little bit of an arc of your career and kind of what what how you've gotten to the point you're at now. Sure. Well, when I um, graduated from law school, I clerked for a federal judge. I lived in New Orleans, clerked for a federal judge for two years. My firm actually was really instrumental in getting that clerkship. You know, it's one of those prestigious things that, you know, they thought, I think that, oh, that would be cool. So um, I did that and was then went back to my firm after the clerkship. And at the time I had had a couple of kids, you know, was on that partnership track in a large insurance defense firm and realized that this was going to be pretty dicey to try to figure all this out and bill all the things, get clients, be there for my children. And so I actually ended up stepping away from the law for about a decade and had some more children. So, I mean, I've had four of my own children. And, um, and then in the meantime, Hurricane Katrina hit. I was um, in the process. We had just decided we were going to divorce. But obviously, when the hurricane hit, we were like, oh, change of plans. So we evacuated, went to Georgia initially, you know, kind of just put our noses down and was like, we need to stabilize our family, make sure everything's fine. My husband at the time was an attorney as well. We both had to get relicensed in new states. He got relicensed in Georgia. I then did not get relicensed in Georgia at the time I was home with the kids. But then we decided we weren't going to stay in Georgia. It was a little too rural for us. And it was a, just a big change from New Orleans. So we ended up moving to Minnesota. So all about change. We were like, you know, just straight up the Mississippi River to go somewhere, you know, like 80 degrees colder. But um, so we did that. And then I got licensed in Minnesota and started practicing there. And then we kind of stabilized. Then long story, you know, we did end up getting divorced. So five years after we decided we were going to, you know, we decided everything was stable, everything was fine. And then I got remarried to my current husband who lives out here in Seattle. So we moved and then my ex-husband as well has moved out here to Seattle. So 
and then I started my practice out here as well after retaking. I've had to take bar exams both in Minnesota and Washington. So, you know, that was kind of fun, the being the three bar exam girl, but you know. Yeah, that's rough. So, yeah, it's been interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I only I had to do that once when I went from Illinois to Michigan, but yeah, I, I can't imagine having done it a, another time. It it seemed like it progressively became more difficult because you know the one coming out of law school, you it's all you did was just study for the bar exam, right? And then you're like, oh, I got to work and I have kids or whatever. <laughs> it's it becomes you realize how easy you had it the first time around. I imagine absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I I've, well, I've never done it. You know, I'm the one on this program with who isn't an attorney, never tried to be, thank God. Um, so while I can't maybe empathize with the two of you, I can certainly appreciate what you guys did, not once, but multiple times now. And I can only imagine that you do, and I have friends who are attorneys and obviously clients who are attorneys, and they spend so much time and passion and energy clearing the bar, literally, um, the first time. There's got to be the sense of, I'm never doing that again. And certainly my my career as a learner is now behind me finally right it, but that's not entirely true and you, you know you just gave us your your uh, chapter and verse which is amazing and inspiring you've had to relearn and be a continuous learner so can you talk at least a little bit about maybe a shifted mindset for the attorney who thinks well my learning days are behind me i've sp spent plenty of time doing that and now i just want to practice law wow i actually think we need to like flip that pancake hard because that is so not the case. I mean, I feel like we come out of law school and we might think we know a lot of things. I mean, and the reality is, I mean, we know nothing. We know nothing about practicing law. We know a bunch of theoretical things and we know a bunch of nonsensical Socratic method that's not gonna prove to be helpful. Um, we don't know anything about running a business. I mean, the amount of learning I have done post law school I mean, puts all the learning up to law school just to shame. I mean, I feel like I spend, I actually was talking to an associate of mine today. She was talking about wanting to read something. And I said, if you don't calendar your learning, it won't happen. And I said, you know, I personally calendar 20 hours a week of things, whether it's webinars, books, some skill I'm trying to develop. I mean, so I'm very purposeful in the learning that I personally do. Maybe it's because I started like below average or something and I have a lot of catching up to do. That could totally be it. But um, I mean, I'm a firm believer in, in being curious. I mean, to me, being a lifelong learner is kind of the goal of life. I mean, as part of my journey, I actually homeschooled my kids for a while. And I have to say, like, that was one of the biggest things for me was when I would see kids get the public schools would kind of suck that desire to learn out of them. I was just like, whoa, this is so not the way it's supposed to go. I was like, you're supposed to want to learn and have passions that you follow and you're into. And so, I mean, that's a really important thing to me personally is, is that, and I mean, I try to help my attorneys with that, like really providing them opportunities for training and personal development and coaching, because I mean, I think we all have a lot to learn, you know. Isn't it? Yeah, I agree. And isn't it, don't you consider it more than just learning for curiosity's sake, but it's an investment, isn't it? In yourself, in your career, in your business. I think it's an investment in you as a human. I mean, to me, if we are not constantly growing, I mean, we're kind of dying or shrinking or, you know, like I think there's just so much personal development to be had 
in all, I mean, in just in so many areas, I don't know. I mean, I feel like every day there's something I learn and I'm like, wow, that's going to really revolutionize how I think about that type of problem or, you know, how I might approach this person that I'm working with or this attitude. I mean, I just find the amount of learning is immense and, but I love it. And so, you know, I guess for people who might not really love learning, that could be harder, I guess, you know, to really, it could be more of a chore. I mean, to me, the chore is trying to get everything else done so I can have all the time I need to do my learning. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly, Elise. And I would say, you know, if you look at most, I mean, I think if you look at the most successful people um, and, you know, success is a relative term, but you know, the the Warren Buffetts of the world, um, his partner, Charlie Munger, um, they, I mean, they, they talk all the time about how much time they set aside for just reading. Uh, that's, they call their job, I mean, much of their job is reading. And, you know, the thing is, we're oftentimes looking for shortcuts in the learning we do. And, you know, what one thing they advise, I know, is going back to the source, going back to the first principles of any concept where you really learn it. So don't just read the cliff notes, read the book, because um, you're gonna get something interesting out of it. And, and like you said, I, I love that idea that you set aside time on your calendar to do these things. Um, it makes me think of like Bill Gates, for example, speaking of Seattle and successful people um, who you know, famously went off on what he called think weeks, where he would have no you know, connection with the outside world. He would bring stacks of uh, memos written by his colleagues, books he wanted to read, and he would just disconnect and, and just learn and think. And, and he said, you know, that was responsible for most of the, the kind of breakthrough ideas he had as the CEO of, of um, Microsoft. And I think we can all learn from that experience, don't you think? Well, it's so interesting you actually bring that up. One, I live, literally where I live now outside of Seattle is, I mean, a quarter of a mile from where Bill Gates's house is here on the Hood Canal. And I go to the same, there's a resort literally next to his home and there are these cabins and I go for my think week every year, the last week of the year. And I do, I grab all these books, all these things. I look out over the water, literally I can see Bill Gates's home, see a seaplane flying in. And um, it is, it is hugely helpful in just helping you kind of understand. I mean, I try to really learn from my past year as much as planned for my new year. Do you know what I mean? I think there's a balance yeah. Yeah, and it's absolutely. been really helpful to me. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, one of the goals when we think about lifelong learning is is really putting that learning into action and, and developing positive new habits as a result of the things we learn, right? Um, and I know I'm... I love the idea that uh, Charles Duhigg has articulated um, about the notion that there are these keystone habits, which would be things that, you know, a, a single habit that has a significant impact on multiple parts of your life. So an example of that would be exercise. You know, if you if you start to develop a uh, consistent exercise habit, you're going to tend to eat better. You're probably sleeping better. You know, maybe you'll be watching less TV. It'll have an impact greater than the time spent exercising itself. And I think that's there's probably the same application in you know if you think about yourself running a, a legal practice and and the, the legal work you do. Uh, there are probably some keystone habits as a uh, as a law firm leader and um, as someone who is you know in this field that are important as well to be a good leader to be a good lawyer. Um, is it does that 
does that kind of resonate at all? And, and can you speak to that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, though, for me, developing those habits is something that I have to be so intentional about because I tend to be the type that I'll do something for a while. And then if I don't stay focused on it, my little squirrel brain might go off <laughs> to something else. And so, I mean, I have certain habits. For me, one of those was developing a gratitude practice, you know, in really working on gratitude and waking up every morning and thinking about, you know, what I'm looking forward to in the day from a gratitude perspective and what, you know, can I bring to my day that would provide a gratitude for somebody else? Like, how can I bring, you know, positive into our day. Because obviously as a family law firm, I mean, we deal with people who are going through very difficult transitions and it can be a very stressful practice area, you know, for my team. And so one of the things that I have spent a lot of time developing is the idea of me just pouring as much as I can into my team with the thought that they then are able to pour into our clients because they are filled up you know, with gratitude, with positive emotional support and all those things. And so for me, I would say the gratitude practice has been huge. You know, I mean, silly things like everyone in my office received a, it's called the five minute gratitude journal and just trying to help them as well think about things and be able to, you know, maybe see things from a different angle than might come naturally or might in the moment, you know, you might see things as negative and really trying to flip that in your head where you can see something positive through that. And so I would say that has been one of my personal keystone habits that has been really beneficial, not only to me, but I think to my team I work with, but also to our clients, you know, to be able to help our clients always be treated in a certain way by me and my team and that really carries over. It might sound kind of trite, but it carries over into how they treat their family during a divorce, like their soon-to-be ex or their children, or how our firm is working with an opposing counsel, you know, so that we're modeling behavior in such a way that we're helping with conflict resolution skills, which is ultimately the goal of family law, you know, yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, that that makes sense. Tom, just one thing and then I'll I'll turn it over to you. But I I think that that resonates a lot with me. I mean, I, I know, you know, from thinking back to my own experience practicing law, you can you as a practicing lawyer, you you really it's not hard to slip into a mindset of resentment towards your clients, right? And and that's just a really bad place to operate from. I mean, there are bad clients and and that happens, but you know, you, you think about it and you think, you know, th these people have they're, they're probably going to, you know, the average person is going to deal with a lawyer once or twice in their life, hopefully. Um, and, and if, if that even, and so, you know, they're coming for you. Uh, there's some, it may not seem like a significant matter to you, but it's, it's probably, you know, one of the most stressful things they've ever experienced. So having gratitude for that client that's chosen you and entrusted you to help them overcome that issue is, is really important. I think that that's probably something that we oftentimes don't think about enough as practitioners. Yeah, well, I was going to say, Jay, that you're a prime candidate for the uh, gratitude journal because you resolved to be more um, grateful for your own shortcomings, et cetera, uh, <laughs> as you shared with the world on LinkedIn. So you might want to invest in a gratitude journal. 
Yeah, no, no doubt. Oh, yeah. At least what what Tom's alluding to is I, I, you know, I was thinking a lot about gratitude. Obviously, last week it just was top of mind, and and I thought, you know, one of the things I, I, I too try to be mindful of expressing gratitude towards others. But I identified that, you know, when I'm when I'm not being when I'm being really hard on myself, I have a hard time expressing gratitude towards others. So, sort of as we're talking about these keystone habits, for me, one of them was being a little bit more, um, I guess easy on myself sometimes. I, I'm trying to be my own worst critic. And so that notion of like self-care and self-compassion to me was something that allows me to, I guess, be more grateful for others as well. I think, I mean, I think you just hit the nail on the head with that because I think we are oftentimes such a self-critic. And then if we're, you know, being intellectually honest, if we're criticizing ourselves to that degree and with that kind of harshness, how are we treating other people? And if we're choosing to treat other people differently, I mean, we obviously have the capacity then to treat ourselves differently. And I mean, that's a huge part of this because, I mean, I catch myself sometimes and I'll be like, oh my gosh, this was a total failed day. Like, you know, my top three to-dos, I somehow managed to not do any of them. And, you know, and I'll be really hard on myself. And then I look and I'm like, well, but you, you know, you did get this person divorced. You met with three, three team members. You met with your 18 year old son, helped him do his college application. You know, you took the dog to the emergency vet. I'm like, you know, you weren't just eating bonbons. Like you really <laughs> did do things. And, you know, being able to give myself that grace, I think helps a lot in giving others the grace they need. And I mean, I do think that's an ongoing skill that, I mean, I talk all the time about the mean girl in my head and boy, can she be mean and trying to make her be quiet is a lifelong work. Well, yeah. you both have just touched on a concept that I wanted to bring up that I think is important because I think it's easy to skip past. And that is this notion of mindset shift, which I think lives in front of addressing behaviors or habits because it's easy to say i'm going to adopt this habit i'm going to quit smoking i'm going to start working out and as we know you know january 15th all of our new year's resolutions are <laughs> null and void because the habit that we committed to was never really committed to and so what lives in front of that i think is a mindset shift and i want to get both of your opinions on how you go about achieving an actually authentic mindset shift so that the habits that you invoke are going to actually stick and produce the results that you referenced, Jay. And I'm thinking of real quickly, a, a woman friend of mine who was a smoker, um, probably a heavy drinker, um, did not exercise at all. I'll never forget the moment she posted on Facebook and said, I woke up this morning and told myself I'm a runner. And it wasn't, I woke up and said, I'm going to start running. I told myself I'm a runner. So she started running. She invested in shoes. Um, she ended up quit smoking, going back to your Keystone Habits, Jay, that has these halo positive effects. She stopped drinking for six months. She trained in, a year later, ran a marathon, completed a marathon, and has been running ever since. And you could see this whole transformation in her person, but it started with this mindset shift, which isn't, I think I'm going to try to adopt a new habit because I read about it and people say it's good. It's like, I authentically believe something new about myself or my career. So either one of you want to react to that? Well, wow. I mean, kudos to that person. I love that. And I think, I mean, to me, it is so important from a mindset standpoint, you have to want the result so much more than you want whatever your current situation is. And if, you know, what she wanted was 
the results of I don't smoke anymore. I now do this. I'm I'm an athletic person. I mean, she put her her money and her actions where her mind was. I mean, her mind was I am a runner. And runners are not serial smokers. They don't drink too much usually, you know. I mean, but it's a, you know, it's a very different mindset. And I think that, I mean, really wanting, because I think so many of us operate in the shoulds, what we should be doing or what we shouldn't be doing. And I think you have to have real desire for the result, for the goals to actually be able to stick you know, and I, I mean, I know for me, part of that was accepting failure. Like I historically am not a person who's big on failure. You know, I think most lawyers, we kind of go through school with that type A personality. And once I kind of became an entrepreneur, I realized that failure was some of my greatest steps to success. So learning to accept failure and learning to be vulnerable enough to experiment was a huge mindset shift for me that my experiments and my failures, they didn't have any bearing on me as a human or, you know what I mean? Like that it was all just bad. I mean, I really came to learn that, I mean, I grow big in through failure and, you know, I will, I will keep building this airplane of my firm <laughs> through all kinds of failures and they'll keep on going and being able to embrace that as part of the process. But I, I think part of it, again, it's that desire, like I wanted to get better. And I understood that to get better, I couldn't kind of play it so small all the time and know that everything was going to be safe and perfect. It was going to be messy. I mean, I'm a hot mess sometimes, you know, <laughs> doing some experiment, but that's okay. Yeah, Tom, that's, I think that's a great, uh, that's a great summary of that issue, Elise, and, and you, you put it really well. And the only thing I would add, it, it's, just a just an emphasis on on the same points you made, but yeah, I, I oftentimes, I, I, I all the time, I believe that our actions follow our identity and not the other way around. So you need to embrace the identity that you you seek to become. Essentially, it's the whole notion of fake it till you make it, but it, it's not quite it's not quite that. But it's the same idea. And because if you don't, if you don't believe you are, as as Elise, you said, you know, you start to think and model yourselves after the behaviors of the other people who have achieved what you want, right? Again, you don't, yeah, runners don't, don't drink, they don't smoke, et cetera. Same goes for, you know, the modeling your behavior after a successful lawyer. Um, so, you know, you need to, you need to really own the identity that you hope to ultimately become. And, and the problem is, you know, this gets back to the issue of imposter syndrome. People have a hard time working past the whole notion that they're somehow a a phony or a fraud or don't belong or whatever the case might be. Um, and when you, when you leave the door open, you don't embrace the identity, then you, it makes it pretty easy for you to negotiate yourself out of the, the new behavior changes that you're trying to make. Um, and, and we're all terrible negotiators with ourselves, right? Um, we're the, the sucker in the room for sure, sitting across the table. Um, so I think, you know, and that's when you start to fall back into the, the old bad habits of your, your prior identity. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Um, but, you know, when you, you know, if you're a, like, let's get practical with this. Like if you're a, if you're an associate in a law firm and you hope to make partners someday, um, you need to start having the partners in the firm 
start to imagine you as someone who can who can join their partnership, right? I Absolutely. mean, th- th- there's no other way. So you need to start modeling your behavior after what a partner would do. So I mean, that's it's kind of the same idea, and and it's critically important. Oh yeah, I mean, you need to be a partner. I mean, yeah. you need to learn all those things that partners are, and then be a partner, make those relationships, you know, manage people all the things that partners do that are different than associates, you know, yeah, take, take ownership over uh, of your work with, you know, without, with no, with no safety net or at least no perceived safety net above you or below you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, in a yeah. similar vein, you know, since we are the thought leadership project and one of the identities we ask attorneys to embrace is that of thought leader. And sometimes it can be a scary proposition. I'm, I'm guessing there's some imposter syndrome baked into that. I think there's also maybe a fear, as we've spoken about, Jay, of, you know, we encourage people to stay really narrowly focused on a given domain and become the expert uh, in that narrow focused domain, because that's how you elevate to the mantle of thought leader. Um, You know, we've talked, we were in our prep, we were talking about this concept of zone of genius, which is where the real successful people operate and stay committed to a zone of genius. I'm wondering, Elise, if you can share with us your experience with that concept. Uh, I, I know it's not your own, but it's it's something that you can, you can certainly speak to and, and talk through maybe what some of the challenges are, but then how you overcome some of those apprehensions to commit to that focus. Well, I think some of the, I mean, the challenges are it feels very limiting when you think of yourself narrowing and niching down and being so focused on one thing, you feel like, you know, you're going to miss out on something or, you know, you're going to be passing up something that is, you know, good and you shouldn't be passing up because you're focused. I mean, in my experience, it's been just the opposite. Like the more you focus. And like, I personally, from a a legal standpoint, I mean, my zone of genius is clearly very high conflict parenting issues. I mean, I deal with some of the most high conflict parenting disputes around the Seattle area. I mean, that's just my jam is very high conflict Mm co-parenting. And you would think, I mean, you know, how can I develop a practice doing that? Like, is there really that much? Yes, there's really that much. Software engineers, Boeing engineers are known for having conflicts in their parenting. (laughs) I can assure you there's a lot of it. But I mean, really getting narrow on that then helps me where I'm bringing in those clients that need that help and they need that expertise. And they know that, you know, that's that is what I do and that's what they can count on. But then I then know that there's all these other areas that are not my zone of genius. So I then am going to develop, I mean, very strong referral networks to very qualified other resources. And I'm going to be bringing other people to bear on the problems that my clients have that are outside my zone of genius. And all that is going to do is further increase my niche because all these referral partners, then they, they know that that's what I do. They know that's what they do. And so when they're getting clients, they're like, oh, no, that's not what I do. I don't deal with those, you know, very high conflict co-parenting, but I know who does. And so it actually creates even larger, you know, amount of business coming in, in your niche. But I mean, it requires you, I think it's again, that part of the failing. And I mean, I sometimes joke being a dumb blonde, I'm super comfortable in my dumb blonde status. Like, (laughs) I mean, there's stuff I don't know about. I am the first to be like, eh, don't know. 
but I can find somebody who knows and I'm going to find an expert who knows. And so you're just creating like a tapestry of stronger professionals doing the work, all operating in their zone of genius. And that just benefits your clients, which inevitably is going to benefit your business. And Jay, it, we've talked too about how you naturally then start to crowd out competitors who do not have that same commitment to the zone of genius. So they, they can't rightfully claim that they are a thought leader going back to the this concept of identity because they truly aren't, whereas you are in this given matter. So um, Jay, how do, how do you, do you have any tips for how you identify what your zone of genius is? Because sometimes people don't recognize their own. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of it's, uh, you know, there, there's art and science to this, like most things. But, um, you know, you if when we're talking about something like your zone of genius, uh, I, I like to there's a, there's a Venn diagram I like to use, which has um, essentially three circles, which is your um, your interests. So what's what's intellectually interesting and stimulating to you, um, your expertise? You know, what do you have a track record of uh, expertise and an experience? And and then the third would be market opportunity. So, again, you know, I think most uh, niche practices have plenty of opportunity within them, but it's important to examine whether there is, in fact, a market opportunity there. But, you know, a good signal of where you should direct your energy is the work that feels relatively effortless to you. Um, the, the the flow state is a close cousin of the zone of genius concept. So where does, you know, where are you um, feeling like you are really, uh, you know, in, in the flow state, work feels effortless, you really feel like you're adding value quickly, um, and you you learn quickly, you're gaining ac- expertise at a, at a rate that your competitors are not. And, you know, it's just everything's clicking, as opposed to the alternative to that, which is, you know, you're taking on work that's outside of your area of expertise, everything's stressful, um, you're anxious, um, you're always racing to get up to speed, uh, you know, it's just not a good feeling to have. So go towards what feels easy and effortless. And that's probably, it doesn't mean that it's not difficult for, for you or others. It just means that it's something that you probably have a great deal of interest in. And that that's a good signal as the, as to the direction to head. Um, and Elise, I just wanted to follow up on one point. I, you know, the point you made about, you know, the referral networks and how you stay in your lane and, and you've developed this tapestry of, of referral relationships, I, you know, that's really a, that's a great illustration. I love that of, you know, coming at this from um, an abundance as opposed to a scarcity mindset, right? I mean, so many lawyers try to hang on to everything. They're, you know, they're, they don't, they hesitate to refer work out to other people um, because, they're, they believe that work is scarce and, and they better take what they can get or else it may never come back. But I mean, that that illustrates what you've experienced where you're getting inbound referrals. There's the principle of reci- uh, reciprocity there that it's really, uh, you know, having that abundance mindset is what's going to help grow a practice. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I just, I say that the world is just not a pie. I mean, there is mm-hmm absolutely plenty to go around. And obviously in family law, I mean, somewhat unfortunately, there's a ton to go around, you know, with people having conflicts and problems and the pandemic has just really exempt, you know, made it even bigger than it was before. And I think the more we can stay in our lane and refer, I mean, I'm just a huge believer in that. I mean, I have, you know, good, good friends who are my direct competitors and we we mastermind together we talk about things we you know solve problems together and 
I mean, I'm the first to refer them cases, you know, like if we're tapped out one week and I'm like, we'll go to this person, you know, and to me, that's just, it is a much more, uh, for me, it's just easier to live like that, you know, to not, and people talk about like, if an associate leaves their office, I mean, I'm the person who would be like, what can I do to help you? If you want to start up a new firm, like what resources can I give you? How can I help you get started on the right foot? What cases can I refer you? You know, like it's just, there's plenty of work to go around. And I think that um, it just, the world just goes better when we treat each other in that way and from a place of civility, support, mentoring, it's just a better way to be. Yeah. Well, Elise, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure Tom has as well. Yeah, and, um, absolutely. Let's wrap up here. But before we go, where can people go You know, online to learn more about you? Maybe you can mention your website uh, for your firm and any other place you'd like to send uh, listeners to check out what you're doing. Well, sure. I mean, they can go to the firm website, which is Elise Bowie Family Law. And also one thing that I am doing now that I'm loving is the Maximum Mom podcast. So I'm doing a podcast every Monday and it's mostly for women, lawyers who are also entrepreneurs and just that trifecta of those three roles and what it really means to pull all three off. And it has been a lot of fun, you know, to talk to a lot of people about that because it's um, it's a big deal, you know, when you think of raising a family being an attorney and then also owning a law firm. There's a lot going on there. So I just, I love that podcast and anybody who wants to reach out to me and is interested in being on the podcast, I would love to hear from them. And I really appreciate your time today and having me on. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Great. Well, well your, that... your positivity is infectious, by the way. So if anyone asks me, what do you mean by abundance mindset? I'm just going to direct them to this podcast and they can listen to themselves. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, this is a real pleasure, Elise. And and yeah, definitely encourage everyone to check out your podcast. That's that's really cool. Um, I'm going to, I'm not a mom, but uh, <laughs> I'm married to one and maybe there I'll get some go. tips. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So uh, yeah, so we'll uh, thank you. And we'll definitely include those links in our show notes as well. But um, thank you for joining us, Elise. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.